Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So how do we know what we hear is real? Disinformation, misinformation has spread widely on social media for several years now. Our country has a president-elect, but even this outcome has been challenged from elected officials, starting with President Trump. This is what he said just a couple days after the election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly, but a lot of votes came in late. To be clear, there is no evidence of voter fraud that will change the outcome of this election. And several legal challenges by the Trump team have been thrown out. All that being said, there are people who believe the election results are not accurate. Today where we live, we talk about disinformation, misinformation, and how media is manipulated. Do you have questions about this topic? We want to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at w, at where we live. Now, coming up, we hear from a Harvard researcher about how the media manipulation casebook that they've come up with teaches us to detect disinformation campaigns. And later, we talk to a media literacy specialist working in a Connecticut high school. But first, joining us on Zoom is Michelle Chula-Lipkin, executive director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. Michelle, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about this important topic. So when we talk about media literacy, can you break it down for us? Absolutely. So um, my organization is uh, defines media literacy as the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, create, and act using all forms of communication. So if you think of media literacy as an expanded definition of literacy for uh, the 21st century, that's usually a good way to understand it. That really what we're, we're asking ourselves is what does it mean to be a literate citizen in the digital world? And media literacy is key. Those skills are really, really important. You used the analogy about uh, how we break down when we read a book. Can you talk about that when we think about media literacy? Well, sure. I think that people um, who want to understand media literacy should really look in that context of traditional literacy. And um, when, because this is the question that we get, like, well, how do you teach media literacy? How do you, how do you instill those skills? And I know we're going to be talking later about that also. But if you think about the way like if you go back into your memory and you think about the way you broke down a book in English class, right? When we were in high school or middle school and you really looked at, you didn't just read the book and then do kind of a review of whether you liked it or not, right? There's an analysis that happens. You have teachers that are guiding you through the themes of the book, uh, the intent of the author, the author's voice, uh, who the book was made for. Uh, you're looking at different characters. You might have, you know, lessons that say, you know, create um, a chapter from a different point of view. Like you're breaking it down, right? You're really decoding the text. 
Well, we need to be doing that with all media content, whether it's an advertisement, whether it's um, a YouTube video, whether it's uh, a, a news show, right? We need to be breaking it down um, and decoding it just like we do with traditional text in a kind of traditional English or history classroom. I'm glad you brought up all media content, content, Michelle, because when we think about media, the first thing that comes to mind often is uh, mainstream media. When you're listening to something, whether it's on NPR or reading your local newspaper online, but you're also talking about social media and even advertisements, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's that is the kind of the challenge right now in the conversation about misinformation and disinformation, which is so vitally important. And even just the way you started the show, and I know we're going to be speaking with Joan Donovan about this. It is really a, a very kind of difficult time right now for our country and for democracy when we have levels of the government kind of, um, you know, spewing misinformation and disinformation. And so I don't want to in any way um, downplay the importance of analyzing misinformation and disinformation. But I do think that we need to be really careful about equating media literacy education just with combating misinformation and mm -hmm. disinformation because media literacy is much broader than that. And if you think about, you know, an ideal world where, you know, all the social media platforms are able to kind of eliminate misinformation and disinformation um, from our information landscapes, we would still need media literacy education. There's still an incredible amount of just plain old information out there that needs to be analyzed and evaluated. And um, that, like, I said before, it can be advertising, it can be YouTube videos, it can be your social media feed. So it's really important that we do address the issues of misinformation and disinformation. Of course, that's vitally important to democracy, but we also need to think about media literacy in a broader way so that we don't always just, you know, you asked a question about or you said something in your open about whether it's real or not. And I always, I find that such an interesting framing of information because I think it's really important to make sure that we're training ourselves, not just about whether something is real or fake or fiction or fact. We have to really look at the gray area of information and that there's bias that needs to be analyzed. There's perspective that needs to be analyzed. There's, you know, who made it? How was it constructed? Who paid for it? All of these questions that go beyond just simply, is this true or not? Um, so I think that's kind of the balance that, you know, while we focus so much on misinformation and disinformation, and the importance of combating that, we also need to look broadly at media literacy skills. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective that you bring, uh, Michelle. I think the reason you know, that, especially when, uh, when I think about working in the media and when we think about all the things that President Trump has said and done over the last uh, three years or so, so much uh, of this has been on the focus of, of what is what is real and what is not uh, fake news and what is fake news. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. Often you've said disinformation and misinformation. What are the differences? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I'm, we're going to have a, a, a more expertise on the on the conversation soon. But in general, the easiest term is just to think of the intent of both misinformation and disinformation. And ultimately, the way I describe it is that disinformation has the intent to deceive when misinformation may be false or accurate uh, information, but not necessarily with the intent to deceive. So misinformation could be as simple as your aunt um, sharing something about 
you know, how many vegetables you need to eat a day to avoid COVID, you know, like that's misinformation. And she's, her intent is probably to make sure or to help you not get COVID, but it's not good information. Um, disinformation is some of the, you know, the kind of uglier side of, of information and where it's really the intent is to deceive and to manipulate. Um, and that's what we see a lot of right now in our political space. Hmm. Again, uh, you're hearing a show all about media manipulation today on Where We Live. Our guest, Michelle Chula Lipkins, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. And she's right, coming up, we will be talking uh, to another educator as well about how to talk about media literacy and how to analyze the things that we see and hear every day. You can join our conversation, especially if you have a question related to this topic, the number 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with a really important time in our country, Michelle, and um, often the focus is on news. And I wanted to play a clip uh, from when we think about, again, uh, traditional news sources. It might be your local newspaper or the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR or WNPR. But we know that a lot of Americans go to other places, including YouTube. And I wanted to play a clip from uh, shock jock Stephen Crowder who has 5 million subscribers. This was a, a part of his live stream just yesterday talking about what makes a legal vote. Again, this is a, a phrase that's been repeated often since Election Day. Here's the excerpt. Somewhere down the line, a court determines what a vote is, meaning what is allowed, what is yep. permissible. Now, you may want that to be 11 million illegal immigrants. Fine, but that's not the law. You may want people to be able to vote after 8 p.m. on election. You may want them to be able to vote two, three, four days later. You may want them to be able to vote in any state that they feel, they feel they'd like to vote in. But guess what? That's not the law. And the law is the same law that protects you and ensures that you have a vote right. and there's any tally whatsoever to begin with. It just comes down to degree. So if we want to argue that in the future, well, you know what? People should be able to vote two, three days after election day. Fine. You can argue that. But that wasn't the law on election day this go around. So, Michelle, I wanted to play that clip as an example of you know what people hear and read every day. And so when we take apart this particular statement, how would you advise people listening to this or even to this show thinking about when you hear something, how do you break it down? Well, I, you know, that is an amazing question and also a really, really difficult one in some ways because um, the, you know, what, what we don't, what I don't know is the, the people that are listening to this, where else are they getting their information? You know, what, what other sources are they getting? So, I, I mean, that would be one of the first, this is one of the first questions that I always ask people, even in just normal life, when I, when we talk about our political views or our values, I always want to know where do they get their information? You know, what, what path are they getting the information? And I don't think we ask that enough, especially in political conversations, um, but that's beside the point. Um, but in, in a situation like this, if I brought this into a classroom, I would really wanna just assess more of who the, who the, um, who the newscast, quote unquote newscaster is, what is the show, what is the show about, um, how do they get funding for the show? Is it completely advertising? Who is advertising on the show? Like, I'd really want to break down the source um, and understand where, if any, expertise this human being has. Um, I think what's, you know, what's really interesting right now is that most of information 
is just people talking like this. Like that's really mm-hmm. right. Like most of information today is just people talking like the person that you just played me. Um, and that is on the highest level of cable news. Also, there's a lot of shows, just people talking. And um, we do need to be careful and check whether or not like what we're doing in reaction, like how are we acting? How are we behaving after we hear this? It's one thing to consume this and just hear someone's point of view, but then to turn it right into fact, I think is the tricky part, right? And that's what we're seeing a lot of. And we need to kind of get to people before they turn it into fact to really do that analysis. Um, it's it's so hard for me sometimes to hear this kind of um talk radio because it's so clear to me like where the agenda or where the perspective is coming from and i i still have a hard time believing or i still have a hard time surrendering the fact that people just kind of believe what they hear from people that they like to listen to um so i think it's just really about like getting people to ask questions and analyze um i do think it's just important to mention again that you know in the information landscape, there is so much information out there and so much of it does not fall into the bucket of misinformation and disinformation and on the other side, quality journalism. So much of the information out there, the media text out there is like that audio clip you just sent me, which is why it's so important that we instill media literacy skills in the next generation and to people that are kind of navigating this digital world because the sheer quantity mm. of information is so overwhelming um, that we really need to teach the skills to kind of kind of navigate those waters. You can join our conversation 888-720-9677. Mary's calling from Norwich. Mary, you're on the show. Hi, yes, thanks for having me. So I had a quick question. My husband and I were discussing um, the election, and we're in our early 30s, so we grew up um, checking sources, learning about this in school as far as um, not relying on independent blogs and those types of things. And I just had a question if you, if I was curious to know if, based on your research, you think that maybe older generations who haven't, who didn't grow up learning about checking sources in school have a harder time um, identifying unreliable sites. Well, you know, um, the, what's interesting is um, the research that was done after the 2016 election showed that the over 65-year-old population did the most, um, the most sharing of misinformation um, during the election cycle. So I do think that there is um, something to be said about the generation that really grew up really believing, you know, that newscasters were all reliable and they all, you know, and there was a trust there in the printed word <laughs> and in um, in news that, you know, has slowly eroded, but more so like people like yourself are just used to checking, right? That wasn't something that kind of was part of the conversation when I know my mother was growing up. Um, with that said, there's been an incredible amount of work being done to support the seniors um, in developing those skills. And I think it brings up a really good point about how we need to think about education in this age of technology shifts as something that's continuing. Mm -hmm. Because, 
it's always, we're always going to see changes in technology. So there's never going to be a point where we can graduate high school or graduate college and feel like, okay, we have all the skills we need to kind of survive in the world till the end of time. No, we need to continue to do kind of professional development of our own to continue to learn the technologies and to understand the media landscape and how communication systems are changing. And that's where we need community involvement. We need our public, you know, our public uh, broadcasting. We need our public libraries. We need some continuing education for those that are not in formal school because things are going to continue to change and we need to make sure that people have the skills. I hope, I don't know if that answered your question. I'm happy to clarify anything. You're hearing Michelle Lipkin, Michelle Chula Lipkin, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, as we talk about media manipulation, what is disinformation and misinformation here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a Harvard researcher about an open access digital research platform that can help us understand how disinformation and media manipulation spread. And we want to hear your questions too. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about misinformation and a week full of falsehoods. How can we better understand misinformation campaigns? We're in luck because there's a media manipulation casebook by the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. We'll tweet out a link at where we live. Joining us now is Dr. Joan Donovan, who's the research director of this center at Harvard. Joan, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I was really interested to dig into this case book uh, that you and your colleagues have put together. So when we talk about media manipulation, how do you define that? Yeah, so when we think about it, we split the definition into two separate parts. So we look at media, not necessarily just the news media, but all artifacts of communication. And then we think about manipulation. You know, our when we think about that, we're thinking both you know, are people hiding either who they are or what they're doing, uh, what their intent is uh, for some kind of nefarious reason? Or is it um, a hoax or a prank or for the lulls, as, as we might say, if you're very, very online? Um, and so we look at manipulation from the point of view of what's the intent of using uh, these kinds of tactics. And so, but in terms of media, we don't just look at uh, mainstream media narratives, but we look at all the ephemera of the online world to try to get a sense of uh, what kinds of information are people receiving and what is motivating them to share that manipulated media. So you've come up with a life cycle model of, of media manipulation to better understand these disinformation campaigns. Can you walk us through those points? Yeah. So when we were trying to think about, well, how do you study lies and hoaxes and grifts uh, scientifically, we wanted to have a method that went beyond just searching for things online, but really understood that uh, media manipulation is only effective if certain kinds of people respond to it and amplify it. So 
when we're studying a media manipulation campaign, what we're looking for is the origins of the campaign. That is who online um, or offline decided that this would be a good idea or this would be persuasive. We look at the way that claims spread online uh, and through the media ecosystem. And then the third point uh, is the most important one, which is we look at who reshares that uh, piece of quote unquote evidence. And so if a politician or a journalist or um, a celebrity shares, let's say coronavirus misinformation, then it becomes newsworthy and potentially it becomes something that platform companies mm -hmm. will take action on like in terms of removing it from uh, their platform or by downranking it in search. And so that's the fourth stage is if people do pick it up and start circulating it, we will see some kind of mitigation or fact checking even to stop the spread of the, the manipulated content. And then the last thing we look at is the adaptation by media manipulators. That is, how do they respond to the actions that were taken? Uh, Michelle Chula Lipkin made a good point earlier that when we think about media literacy, we shouldn't just focus on news media. But Joan, because of the moment our country is in right now, I can't help but focus on what has been said uh, since uh, this election. I'm thinking about uh, even uh, the many claims of voter fraud and how we saw Project Veritas uh, sharing uh, this one claim from a, an Erie County, Pennsylvania uh, postal worker. Can you talk about that example of how something uh, gets shared and then it just blows up. Yeah, so we've seen over the years different um, political partisan operatives uh, sort of posing as news. And, and that is tactical as well in the sense that they definitely have a political agenda, but by framing it as news, they are in some spaces afforded, you know, the protections of the press. And with this claim, you have a postal worker who has come out and said that the postmaster in their um, in their area uh, it made them backdate ballots and said, even though the ballots were taken out of the bins on um, November 4th, that they were going to date all of the ballots with November 3rd. And... In doing so, that uh, in their mind constitutes uh, a kind of voter fraud. And so Project Veritas breaking the story as if this whistleblower, this anonymous whistleblower, had uncovered massive voter fraud. I mean, even at the scale of what they're really talking about, we're talking about a couple hundred potentially ballots, not tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but even if um, what played out over the last few days has been really um, convoluted, there's a there's a big you know muddying of the waters that's gone on here, where that person uh, recanted their statements to U.S. Postal Service investigators, and then later went back on Project Veritas and claimed that they were forced to recant, and. This is all playing out on social media, not necessarily in the in the view of the mainstream. And so as these allegations gain steam and gain attention online, that has a way of forcing a conversation in the mainstream media about voter fraud, 
on the terms of this very unsteady ev evidence. And so we want to understand as researchers, well, how do media agendas get set? And then what is the role that social media is playing in terms of what we, um, Molly Souters, another researcher would call the illicit aura of information, which is to say that when people are being told that information is being withheld from them, uh, that can be a powerful motivating factor in them seeking out uh, these claims. And, and that tends to drive the sharing of disinformation because people think that it's being suppressed in some way. I was thinking also uh, when you have high profile uh, legislators, lawmakers like Senator Lindsey Graham pointing to this particular claim uh, from this uh, postal worker in Pennsylvania, it, it, it then tends to feed into this cycle that you're talking about where it becomes a new story. Exactly. And we'll see, you know, there was a great article in NBC yesterday by Brandy Zadronsny that pointed out that there's at least 20 different um, campaigns going on to get people to uh, believe that massive voter fraud took place. And so if you're a researcher of misinformation or disinformation in this moment, you're seeing a lot of things being volleyed in the air that only a few of these narratives are going to be picked up by newsworthy individuals. I think the other thing that we're experiencing right now, though, is um, a factionalized discourse amongst Republicans. And so it'll be interesting to see over the next few weeks as uh, Trump's legal challenges uh, occur, who steps up and supports uh, these claims of massive voter fraud and those that say, let's get on with it. There's an election in Georgia that needs our attention. You're hearing Dr. Joan Donovan, Research Director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University. Uh, she and her colleagues have created a media manipulation casebook as we talk about media manipulation and disinformation. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Ellen's calling in from Newington. Ellen, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I am a former journalist. Uh, journalist, media person um, with a master's in communication. And one of the things I learned years and years ago was check your facts before it goes out. And I've seen people's heads roll if their facts weren't correct. And nowadays, you know, even, you know, people getting their information from these sources that are, you know, just made up. Some of them are made, just made up. They can't, they, people don't realize this, and they, they don't check their facts. I've told people who've sent me things that I knew were wrong. I, I go to Scope, um, what is it, Scopes? Snopes. Uh, I think it is mm -hmm. the website um, to check my facts, to check their information, and then I was, or Snopes, I think it was. Yes. I would say to them, look at this. You know, I sent them the email back, you better check this. Look at this. You shouldn't be sending this out to everybody. And um, some of my friends said, thank me. Some of them I never heard from again. And <laughs> frankly, you know, if they're going to send out misinformation, they, you know, 
you, you just don't do that. It's, not, it's like the game, a game that the kids used to play. Uh, you know, with uh, you stand, you stand, you pass a secret, and it ends up being different from the, mm. you know, at the end of the line. Well, thank you, Ellen, uh, for calling in. Uh, Joan Donovan, I wanted to go back to you because when we think about uh, who the uh, media manipulation casebook is for, and we think about how uh, journalists and others can learn about these different strategies and the consequences of misinformation, can you talk about that? Yeah, and I think the, the last caller is right in the sense that, you know, this information is presented in a way that is meant to trick you. Right. It's not the case that people are massively deluded. It's it's designed to look like news. It's using all the signals that would help us think that there is evidence at play. Um, But once you start to dig into what that evidence actually is, you realize, oh, wait, that's a video from two years ago. Or that's a picture that has been reused half a dozen times. Or this is a, a narrative that we've seen uh, thrown into, uh, you know, the online social media uh, half a dozen other times before it's stuck this one time. And so our manipulation casebook is um, a way for journalists, researchers, people who are interested in the public, policymakers to understand what these patterns are and what these tactics are. And I'll give you an example of something very simple, which is we all need to use keywords to access information online. And depending upon which platform you're on, be it Google or YouTube or, um, you know, Facebook, you're going to get different search returns for the same keywords. And for a while, I was looking at Trump 2020, which you think would lead you back to pages put together by Trump or the Trump campaign and donation sites. But what you found, what I found was on many of these platforms, Trump 2020 was full of grift, full of impersonation Mm. and full of um, essentially claims that they were you know, either selling merch or, you know, uh, hats and T-shirts on behalf of the campaign when there was no real relationship with the campaign. And so a tactic like that, which we call keyword squatting, is something that helps us understand why the media environment or why the search environment is so uh, difficult to wade through just as a, a regular old person that's seeking information. And that to us is the purpose of the casebook is to elucidate these tactics so that people are working with a common vocabulary and a common understanding of how media manipulation works in practice. And from there, uh, mitigating strategies, Joan, like what are the consequences for the people who are sharing uh, this kind of disinformation and misinformation? It's a really good question because right now it seems like there are no consequences. Uh, For years, uh, this field was, uh, you know, lots of researchers and journalists pointing out to platform companies all the failures of content moderation. In this moment where there is real business and reputational risk to platform companies getting it wrong, we've seen uh, a lot more willingness to mitigate misinformation as it's happening. So over the last week, we've seen uh, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube take action on Steve Bannon's accounts. 
who was um, in 2016 at part of the Trump administration before that was was at Breitbart. Um, he had launched a podcast um, where he uh, threatened violence against Fauci and Chris, uh, the FBI, uh, Chris Ray, and he lost his accounts. We've also seen other kinds of mitigation related to taking down groups that are spreading misinformation, polit- political misinformation and medical misinformation on Facebook. These private groups are a, a significant vector in which people start to discuss misinformation and then discuss what they might do about it in terms of either public protest or um, calling other, you know, calling election officials in order to report voter fraud that they actually didn't witness, but they heard about online, for instance. So there's all these ways in which uh, platform companies have stepped in and started to mitigate against uh, media manipulation, misinformation in this moment. But I think the broad moment, the, the broad concern that I have about this moment is the pace at which we are seeing platform companies take action is still too slow. And so these things will, uh, media manipulation campaigns still are gaining traction. They're still um, convincing people that it's important to go, you know, protest at these uh, collection, uh, these ballot uh, collection and counting centers. And so when misinformation mobilizes and we haven't had strong mitigation against it, we end, we end up seeing other people paying the price for it, which in this case is either law enforcement or journalists or um, in, in the bigger sense, even the transition team for, for the Biden-Harris administration, who actually have to be really careful about what they say in public about voter fraud at this stage, because any attention from them can also trigger another wave of misinformation online. Jerry's calling in from Wyndham. Jerry, what's your question? My question is, uh, you know, we talk about media manipulation for nefarious purposes, but doesn't, you know, isn't any claim made in the media also considered to be manipulation? So if we're talking about climate change and trying to get that point across to someone wouldn't that be considered manipulation to get someone to fall in with your idea? Joan, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I I would call that maybe like in a in a rosier light, persuasive communication. But uh, we have we have a serious problem with accuracy online. Um, uh, or getting at facts, and this nowhere is this clear in the preponderance of medical misinformation going around about, uh, especially about the coronavirus. Now, the job of media in in terms of news is to provide accurate information. And that means framing and contextualizing evidence in a way that the public understands and um, then can either take action on or not. When it comes to reporting on masks, for instance, there were a few things that happened early on in this year that were really unfortunate around um, public understanding of what wearing masks uh, was going to do for you and for others. 
that became such a hyper-politicized point that it, it became difficult for the media to talk about it in terms of the science, which was evolving and people were then starting in the CDC and others were starting to realize how important masks are to the prevention of coronavirus. But that became a political opportunity where uh, politicians were weighing in as if they were some kind of expert. And so I would say that the media has to think about the way in which they position information and to Michelle's point earlier, they have to actually do the media literacy part of it as well by saying, this is how we know what we know, and this is why you should change your behavior in this way, which is, in this case, to wear a mask. Yeah. Um, that, to me, doesn't necessarily have um, manipulation at the heart of it in terms of uh, are they trying to advance any particular political end or are they trying to make money uh, by doing so? No, in this sense, um, we have to think about how are people getting ac access to accurate information and then what kind of behaviors are they changing based on that information? Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that all media is ne necessarily, you know, quote unquote, manipulated. But to Michelle's point, we do want to understand more about where we get our information, how we get it, and then how it influences our behavior. Mm -hmm. This uh, media manipulation casebook jo that Joan and her colleagues have created, again, we're going to tweet it out at where we live. It really breaks down, I believe, 14 case studies of, of how these campaigns have spread. And it's a really interesting read. Uh, Joan Donovan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It's great to talk to somebody other than my coworkers. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> Thank you, Joan. Now, Michelle Lipkin, Michelle Chula Lipkin still with us, and we're going to talk to a high school media literacy educator as well just after the break. You can join us, too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us on Zoom, Michelle Chula Lipkin, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, as we talk about uh, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, Doris is calling in from Southbury. Doris, uh, welcome to the show. What did you want to share? Uh, yeah, I have a, a comment. Um, it seems like in these particular times that we live in, uh, it doesn't really matter how much the truth is unveiled and how many times you hear it. It seems like what it all boils down to is what the viewer or the listener wants to believe. You can tell them, I don't know how many times, this is what it is, and still people choose to already have made up their minds and they're going to believe what they want to believe, whether it's the truth or uh, some disinformation. Good point, Doris. I think that many of us, when we talk to even family members about uh, the different uh, viewpoints that, that we have and you know, how do you convince people uh, of what you believe and maybe they don't want uh, to believe um, the things that you're saying and vice versa. And so, Michelle, how do you respond uh, to our caller? 
Well, you just explained confirmation <laughs> bias, which is, um, <laughs> you know, a really big part of the media literacy conversation over the last several years, certainly since the 2016 election. I mean, it's a really, really important point. And I think what I want to add to that point is uh, that we we can't ignore that we are getting a lot of information or we're starting with the social media platforms. So we're going on these platforms and we need to address the algorithm because what happens is we see more of what we want to see, right? We, sh- we are, so our confirmation bias is constantly, um, you know, fed. <laughs> and that is something that I think we really need to take a look at. You know, it's, it's really interesting what the platforms are doing with content uh, moderation, but if we don't address the core of the algorithm where you have um, just this pattern of information being fed to you that the algorithm knows you want to see, it is going to be very, very hard to break that confirmation bias um, kind of cycle. And I think it's a really, really important point. And it's it's not even this is what it seems like. It's been proven that people believe what they want to believe. And so I think that's why sometimes we need to focus, even if we think about the election disinformation, what I really want to see is a new campaign about the facts about voting, you know, like Mm. rather than focusing on combating the misinformation, let's Mm. just continue to share the facts. And I think that it's a challenge. So I appreciate you bringing up confirmation uh, bias Mm. because I don't think we can really talk about this without Mm. bringing that up. We have another media literacy educator with us, Dr. Belina Diebru, who works uh, with the Branford Public Schools. Belina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, One of my colleagues said teaching uh, young people about media literacy is easy. It's the adults you have to worry about. Uh, You do work with young people. And so how do you approach uh, this subject with them? Well, it's interesting that they said that because I think that um, it depends. And really, it has to do more with the way in which, you know, a teenage brain is versus an adult brain and so forth, but also how information is being distributed to them. Um, It's interesting because a lot of the conversation has been about news stations and news environments and so forth, but students are primarily getting their information from their social networks. Right now, their three primary choices would be Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. And so... um, When we look at how misinformation and disinformation is coming to students, we actually have to look at it on a more personal level with them because they're not looking at the news media the way adults are looking at the news media. They're not looking at things in the same vantage point. They're very much looking at it at how it personally affects them. So talking to them about things like how rumors get started and taking that to a level that's very personal because they understand that because they're in these social environments changes the way in which they engage with the media in and of itself and then having wider conversations about what's not true and what is true um, and then taking that to a different level in terms of different curriculum areas. Because we just uh, finished up uh, an election, and I'm just curious how these conversations uh, in your classroom happen related to what they are seeing in current events. Well, you know, honestly, this is a different year. We're not in a traditional school year. And so in a, I would say in a typical year, we build a classroom to have discourse, to have um, engaged conversations, to have conversations where, you know, we can have 
disagreement and also agreement and also teach about how to listen. One of the things that I find incredibly problematic right now is that um, as a society, we don't listen to each other. There's a lot of noise. Um, and I think part of media literacy education right now for teaching students is, is to, to see beyond the noise and to see that the noise even exists so that you can get to information. Uh, we certainly teach how to engage with materials, how to look for bias, how to access information, how to analyze information. And through various curriculum areas, that is available to them. You know, certainly when we look at stats and polls, we can look at math and how that has an impact in how we perceive information. Or when we're looking at things like, you know, the pandemic right now, or looking at um, how people perceive information about COVID, we have science classrooms that are engaged in that. Um, our English classrooms certainly engage in topics about power and uh, disengagement through the literature that they're reading. And our social studies classrooms certainly have our civics component. And really our library media specialists who I think have for the longest time been doing this work have been and sort of the backbone and the, the, the back piece of all of this who have always talked about information and how information is, is used and not used well within classrooms and outside of classrooms. Chris is calling in from Weathersfield. Chris, we just have a few minutes. Go ahead. Oh, doesn't look like uh, Chris is there, but I do still see uh, the question she wanted to ask, and that's uh, throughout history, there have been people who, quote, drink the Kool-Aid. What do we do about this issue? Uh, Michelle Chililipkin, that might be a, a question for you. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you know, there is always going to be a percentage of the population that believes what they're going to believe and doesn't really want to debate and do all of those skill building exercises that Belita just explained. And I, and I don't think the, our efforts, not that I want to ignore that um, population, but I think that there are this, the 75% of uh, the country and the society that really wants to, to be educated around the information and has the intent to understand information. And so we have to, you know, focus there. I mean, if you look at, I am always amazed that, you know, Richard Nixon was, you know, proven to be a criminal and still he had a 25% <laughs> approval rating, right? So, you know, we're o there's always going to be that. Um, and I think that we could spend a lot of time there, but I, I much prefer spending time with the, the receptive folks and people that really are eager to learn mm -hmm. and to grow their skill base. Can I piggyback on that though? And also yes, quickly, Belina. <laughs> Sure. I'm just going to add that it's really important to note, to note that viewpoint and point mm. of view is incredibly big piece of this conversation. Because when I heard that question, I wanted to say, well, what is the Kool-Aid? Because one Kool-Aid mm. for one person looks very different for another person. <laughs> and I think that's part of what the work of media literacy is about, is actually being able to deconstruct what that looks like and how it is that, you know, it was termed that and how we can change conversations so we can have those conversations. Mm, that's a good point. And especially, uh, Michelle, you'd also said that these are skills that we need to build. And so it's good to hear that young people uh, in middle and high school are learning uh, media literacy, but it's something all of us need to work on. Uh, I just want to mention that there's another resource through Connecticut Public called uh, Think Along. Uh, Thinkalong.org is a resource for educators and students in our state uh, to learn more about media literacy. But I want to thank Dr. Melina Diabru uh, for joining us, media literacy educator at Branford Public School. 
Schools, and Michelle Chula-Lipkin, Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. It's a conversation that uh, we should keep having. So I thank you both for your time today. Thank, thank you for having us. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. On the phones today, Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Tomorrow we're going to talk about a, a very serious issue in our state. Just last month, Connecticut lost four young people to suicide, leading Connecticut's child advocate to issue a public health alert. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the unique mental health challenges that young people are facing during this pandemic and how can adults better support them. That conversation tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.